The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Well, if you're just joining us, we're glad you're here today. Um, We really have been praying for you that you would be with us. Um, And and just to bring you up to speed on where we're at, at Sacred City Church, we usually preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Um, And we're doing that. We're just kind of isolating ourselves here within the context of the Lord's Prayer. And we're in a series called Pray Like Jesus. Uh, And as we're learning to pray like Jesus, we're really learning the prayer which Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him, Lord, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. Now, this is a prayer that many people know. Uh, lots of people have grown up in homes, maybe in churches, catechism classes, where you learn uh, to memorize this prayer. Yet, even as familiar as it is, it's an underutilized resource. Oftentimes we let the words roll right off the tips of our lips without considering what exactly it is we're saying. We don't necessarily realize how profound or how radical these words are that Jesus gave us to pray. And that's especially true of the two petitions that we're looking at today in Matthew 6.10, where Jesus teaches us to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to sit in this sentence today and just really focus on what it is we're asking for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Now these two petitions, as we sort of move into them, what we first see is that they're, they're a bit of a critique of how we pray, or how we tend to pray if we are left to our own methods of prayer. Most of the time, uh, at least if you're like me, what we're praying for is so small, relatively. If I had... If I had, uh, we're concerned with life's details, and we're told to bring God uh, all the things that we, we are, consi- uh, all the things that we're concerned with to God in prayer, and He's mindful of those. But but a lot of times, our problem with prayer is that we become too self-focused on some of the minutia of our life. That our prayer requests seem to be filled with requests to get over colds and pass tests, to find love, to be blessed and financially secure, that our children will be obedient. And in giving ourselves to these relatively small prayers, we end up missing the big picture that God gives us when we pray. We miss the vastness, the grandness of what God is setting out to do in the world and within ourselves. Now, I found this to be true of myself this week as I prepared for this sermon. For whatever reason, I had a hard time getting something down in writing for this. Now, this is not a disclaimer that this sermon is going to be bad. I'm not saying that. But but in my head, as I'm sitting, I'm struggling, I'm toiling. Sometimes writing sermons is like uh, the Lord drops something into your lap and you're super jazzed about it. But other times, it's more like a wrestling match. Lord, give me uh, a sermon. (laughs) And and though I had all the pieces of the sermon in my head, I I definitely didn't have a shortage of things to say, which probably isn't a shock to most of you. Uh, I would start writing and then have to delete. And so I got to this point of desperation in my sermon writing where I was just pounding my desk saying, Lord, give me a sermon. While I should have been praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Now let me just ask you, what what sort of impact 
do you think God would have on this church, in our city, in the world, if we sort of graduated from our small prayers that, that are meaningful and we ought to be praying for those things, but if we graduated from those into a cosmic prayer, a bigger prayer, something that transcends everything in this world, what do you think would happen if we started earnestly praying for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven? See, while we're spending our breath praying small prayers, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for something bigger. John Newton wrote a hymn. He says, Thou art co coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And what the Lord's Prayer is doing, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he's giving us permission to ask big. We're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. And what we're praying is that the world as we know it would be flipped upside down. That the kingdom of man, the kingdom of self would be thrown away and the kingdom of God would be established. We're praying not only the world would be flipped upside down, but we ourselves would be flipped upside down. That personally, our will, our desires would be trumped by God's will and his desires for us. And because of this potency, because of the bigness, the grandness that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer has been labeled as the most dangerous prayer. It's big and it's bold and Jesus wants us to pray it. Now, to understand the profoundness of this prayer, we, we actually need to go back and be mindful of the original audience. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to pick up the Bible and, and, and read it as if Jesus is speaking directly to us in our immediate context. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, to, to go back to where Jesus is at as he's sharing these words, he's, he's in the middle of his greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he's basically telling his followers how the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdom of earth. And when we think about it, the people who are sitting at his feet are not white, middle-class Americans. These are mostly poor, ostracized Jews. Now, when Americans hear language about a kingdom... We're usually not too concerned with that. We live in a democratic republic. We don't have a king over us. The only time we actually start to care about a kingdom is when there's some sort of a royal wedding, right? When tabloids are filled with this royal wedding, elegant, right? We start to pay a little bit of attention to it. But even then, the thought of a kingdom is not something we naturally gravitate towards. It's actually something that we cringe at. Right? It's woven into the fabric of our nation that we have a day that we celebrate unapologetically of our independence from a king. But for the people in the original audience, they have a completely different worldview about a kingdom. Jesus' language about a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, 
is what they're longing to hear. They're not cringing, they're anticipating. Because at that moment in time, the Jews didn't have their own king. At that moment, most recently, they had been overtaken by Roman rule. And, and they're living in a time where there's a lot of political tension, right? Jews had their own sort of national identity. They had their own worldview. They had their own uh, uh, narrative that they were subscribed to. But when Caesar imposed his rule, there was now a new worldview that was competing, a new rule, a new reign, a new type of kingdom that the Jews didn't necessarily want to subscribe to. And while Jesus is there teaching his followers about this kingdom that's coming, a kingdom that supposedly is going to overthrow the kingdom that is current, they, they're realizing that this isn't the first time Israel had been subscribed to a different king. We see this happening all the way back in the Old Testament in the beginning of Exodus. That after a long stay in Egypt, God's people who go by the name of Israel had become slaves. They were under the unkindly rule of an evil man named Pharaoh who treated them harshly. He was oppressive. That he set himself up as the king. Really, at that time, he was the king of the world. And in the oppression God's people cried out to God, save us, deliver us, and God heard their prayers. And so he set this plan in motion to liberate his people from the oppressive rule of King Pharaoh. He called this man named Moses, Moses, and he gave him a plan. He'd go to, to Pharaoh and basically demand for, his, for God's people to be released and let out from under Pharaoh's thumb. The promise that God gave Moses was that God would be their God and they would be his people. That God would give his people a promised land. Now, what we're seeing here, this is a lot of kingdom language. Right here in this context, we see the three essential pieces of the kingdom. That there's king, right? God is their God. God is their king. That there's a people, that God is reigning and ruling over his people, and there's a kingdom, a land, a place that's theirs to belong. And it's with mighty acts, God delivers his people, and he leads them through the wilderness to the promised land. And as they're being led by Moses through the promised land, they take a pit stop at Mount Sinai where God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And, and we think of the Ten Commandments, we tend to think of them as oppressive uh, but really, in the right view, the Ten Commandments are liberating. They are rules for God's people to live in God's kingdom. It is where God establishes his formal rule and reign over his people. He's like, if you want to live in my kingdom, this is what it looks like. Now, these rules were not like Pharaoh's oppressive rules. For example, Pharaoh worked these people to the bone Seven days a week, long days, really tough manual physical labor. And here God calls them into the wilderness. He says, for six days you work, but on the Sabbath you rest. That's a profound change for God's people. And so as we unpack the rest of the laws that God gives his people, they're not oppressive laws. 
They're not laws to stifle people's happiness or delight. They're rules and laws that God gives his people to lead them into a flourishing life. And when God offers them, he asks, Here, here's the rules. Are you going to subscribe to them? And God's people say, yes, instantly. Those rules, those laws, those commandments you've given us sound actually really nice compared to where we're coming from. And so we're seeing here that even in the wilderness, even though they're not quite to their final destination point, that God is different from Pharaoh in every way. He's a good king. He looks after his people. He provides for them. As they're hungry, he makes bread fall from the heavens. He provides quail and meat for them to eat. When they're thirsty, he provides water for them to drink from a a fountainhead of a rock. He goes before them as a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm and a cloud of of smoke during the day to show them, to guide them the way. See, God cares about his people, which is completely unlike Pharaoh. Now, as enemies would come against Israel, God would flex and show his power and defeat every enemy that would step foot. And eventually, by God's power, they would be led to their kingdom, to the promised land, the place that they were longing to be. Now, in this era, God had leaders like Moses and Joshua, guys that were functioning as leaders of God's people, but God himself was the king of his people. And this is what made Israel distinct from every other nation. Every other nation, every other country had appointed a man to rule them, to be their king, to be their guide, to be the monarch, to be the pillar of their nation. But for Israel, God was that. God was their king. And as they were loyal to God, Israel would flourish. They would win battles. People would come against them and they'd be victors. But when they lost their loyalty to God, when they became unfaithful to their king, things turned bad very quickly. They would become captives to other nations. They'd be drug away into slavery. They would lose battles. They would be plundered by their enemies. And this whole time, God sees what's happening to his people, and he's, he's grieved by this. God finds no delight in seeing his own children, the ones that he delivered from the slavery of Egypt, being oppressed like that. And so in his kindness, God sends people called judges, people to guide Israel back to loyalty to God, to, to reestablish the kingship of God. Now, eventually what happens is people get sick of these judges. There's a line of judges here, uh, and there's a lot of story, there's a lot of history here with that with Samuel and his, his sons. But what happens is they get tired of the judges, and they want to be like every other nation and have their own king. And so they go to Samuel, and they demand, who's functioning as the judge at the moment, and they demand a king. And Samuel says, hey, this is not a good idea. Guys, this is not, this isn't what you really want because what will happen when you get a king is he'll start taking, taking, taking from you. He'll take your sons and enlist them into his military. 
He'll take your money, your workers, your grain, your wine. Everything that you have will be cut into, and he'll take it for himself. And sooner or later, the corruption of man will be so prominent in this kingdom that you'll be in the very same spot where you were back in Egypt, where you're left crying out to God, help us, save us, liberate us. But Israel didn't listen to Samuel. They heard his warning and yet insisted that God would give them a king so they could be like all the other nations. Now this was deeply hurtful to God. Because what they're essentially saying is they're looking at God and saying, you're not doing a good enough job for us. You're not cutting it. We don't like it. And so with grief, God gives Samuel permission to appoint the first king of Israel. And, and it's, it's ironic because when Samuel goes to, to anoint King Saul, he, he starts off by saying, hey guys, remember our God, the God, the king who delivered us out of slavery, out of Egypt? This is the God you're rejecting. And in his place, here's the king that you want. Now, the first king was King Saul. He was wealthy. Scripture tells us he's wealthy, he's tall, he's handsome. He's a powerful man, and he, he starts off kind of decent, but with time, he evolves into a bit of a psychopath. And then you get David, who's the next heir of the throne, and it's a night and day difference. David is actually a good king. He's not perfect. Actually, Scripture is brutally honest with a lot of David's failures, but in terms of being a king, he is a good and just and, and righteous king, that he's a, a man after God's own heart. And so God promises to his people to uphold David's kingdom forever, that it would be a kingdom marked by loving kindness, by justice and righteousness. Yet by the time David's grandsons inherit the throne, they end up dividing the kingdom. It's split between Israel and Judah. There's this inner turmoil within the kingdom uh, that, that causes what ultimately will become their demise. And eventually, the people of God once again find themselves oppressed by someone else's rule, the rule of an outsider. So when Jesus comes, that's the history, that's the context that these people are thinking about here. So as Jesus comes and he's proclaiming something about the kingdom of God, a coming kingdom, this is good and welcomed news for the people. This is, this is a hint to what God is doing in reestablishing the throne of David. Now when the Jews hear about this, they're primarily thinking in political terms. They're thinking about a mighty ruler like David is going to come and slay all of their enemies and the kingdom will be established in that sense. He'll overthrow Roman rule and then Jewish, the Jewish nation will once again be ruled by itself. In fact, the Old Testament prophets speak of this in Daniel chapter 244. It tells us that there's a kingdom that's coming that will never be destroyed a kingdom that crushes all other kingdoms and endures forever. 
And so this audience that Jesus is speaking to, they're primed, they're ready, they're eager to hear about this kingdom that's coming. But the kingdom that Jesus is talking about isn't exclusively a political kingdom. It definitely has a political tint to it. But the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is much more thorough. It's not the kingdom set up by man, not a kingdom ruled by man, but the kingdom of God, where God himself is reinstated as the king of his people. Now, this doesn't mean that there's a phase where God wasn't king. God has always ruled supreme. God has always held the heavens and the earth in his hand, but there's a sense where he backed away to let his people have their desires. And now God is saying, I'm stepping into that. I'm resuming my rule and my reign among my people. Now, two times before we get to this passage where Jesus is teaching us to pray, uh, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It points to a current reality that Jesus is saying that the, the kingdom of God has come now. There's a present tense to the kingdom. However, there's also a coming reality of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. We're asking that it would come. Now, what we call this is the already not yet of God's kingdom. That God's kingdom has already been inaugurated. It's already been set up. It's already in place. But it is not yet consummated to its fullness. The kingdom already isn't about a location, but rather a relationship between God and his people. The kingdom already exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as the king of their lives. And out of love, out of honor, they obey him. That they do as he guides and leads. They follow his providence. And in doing so, in setting Jesus up as the Lord, the king of our lives, we begin to live under the reign of God. And we experience the blessing of a king who, not, who doesn't take, 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 but a king who gives, 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 gives. But there's also an aspect of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. A kingdom that is more glorious than what we can imagine. A kingdom that far exceeds Israel's political desires, that radically reorients every inch of creation. Where everything is accounted for, nothing is overlooked, everything is set right, everything is made perfect. Now we can think of this in terms of of politically, where there will be a time in God's rule and reign where there will never be a power struggle, where nation will not fight nation, where there's absolute and total world peace. Socially, we think of it in terms of injustice and divisions of racism and sexism and classism. All of those divisions among the church and the world vanish. Justice and unity is established can think of it in terms of relationally. Every personal tension, every hurt, every wound, every chip on the shoulder will be reconciled. Think of it in terms of of physical and emotional pain being banished. 
A day when there are no more tears to cry. When there is no such thing as grief or anxiety or depression. The kingdom of God is the good life. And scripture provides us imagery after imagery of this where, where it's a plentiful garden where lion will lay down with lamb, where child will play over the, the den of cobras. It's where spears and swords will be reformed into gardening tools. See, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Absolute, total bliss. Now, there's a twofold meaning when Jesus tells his followers to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, first, we pray like John the apostle prays at the end of the book of Revelation after he's given the church this big vision for the new heavens, new earth, where everything's set right, where God is with his people, a city of joy and celebration and feasting, that with John, we pray Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring that kingdom quickly. Consummate the kingdom. Establish it thoroughly and radically. Transform this world that it would look more like heaven. But the second meaning of this prayer, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven, is that the rule and reign of Jesus would be set up in our own hearts. Not only our hearts, but in the heart of others. To pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is not only just a reshaping of our own desires, but it's a prayer for those people who have not yet encountered the kindly rule of Jesus. That by faith, we would embrace Jesus more and more each day as the king of our lives and live according to his ways. Now, the reason why I spend so much time talking about the story of Israel and their faithfulness and unfaithfulness and honoring God as king and, and disowning him as king is because the story of, un, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God is the story of every human heart. There is something embedded in us that wants to rebel against the kingship of God, to, to give him the boot and, you know, and say, you know what, God, I can be my own king. I know what way is best. I have a vision of my kingdom, and I'm not so much concerned about yours, but I'm really interested in pursuing mine. And instead of letting Jesus rule in our lives, directing us with wisdom and compassion, with benevolence and goodness, we opt for other things to be our king. We want to be self-ruled. And in allowing ourselves to be self-ruled, what happens is that something else kind of undercuts. Something else really becomes our king. It's not that we're self-ruled. It's that in becoming self-ruled, we become ruled by something else. Whether it's money, our sexuality, our family, our jobs, our reputations, our relationships. These are the things that when God isn't our king, start to take over the throne. Those things determine how we live, how we're affected emotionally, 
where we invest ourselves. And these things take and take and take and take. Eventually, this, this, is, the, this is the misconception of postmodernity. That if I'm set up as king, I know what's best for me. I know that my kingdom is going to bring me happiness and joy. And really what happens, it, it, it's, it's the opposite. That it becomes oppression. That once again, you're in chains to a cruel ruler. And then we, like Israel, finally come to a breaking point and we're left crying out, save me, God, help me, get me out of this. Now, if if you're actually ready to let go and give God his throne again, what Jesus teaches us to pray is your kingdom come. And to honestly pray this means that I am giving up the pursuit of what I think is best for me. We're not praying my kingdom come because any alternate king that we put up on the throne becomes oppressive even if that person or thing is you and me. By praying your kingdom come, we're surrendering our pursuits, our vision of the kingdom and embracing God's kingdom. But in order for the kingdom of God to be enjoyable for us, something has to happen within our own souls. There has to be a major renovation of our wills and our desire. And this is what the second petition that we see today is about. or that, Well, it's really the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. When we say, your will be done. This is a matter of our will, our desires, what we want to see happen, shaping around God's own desires. Now, some might pe- look at this and think that this is, this is a, a sort of passive resignation, right? Oh, whatever, God, your will be done. You're going to have your way anyway. I guess that's... You know, just, you know, whatever. That's not the case. To pray your will be done is an act of subversion. It's an act of rebellion against our fallen and sinister desires. J.I. Packer, in his, his, he wrote a little book about the Lord's Prayer. In this book he says, Here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will which is the equivalent of practicing magic, but to bring my will in line with his. See, this is where a lot of people struggle because to do this, to say your will be done, it feels like we are letting go of too much. People might argue that this is irresponsible. Why would you do that? Why would you give up control of your life? Your life is for you. Do what you want. Set your own path. Blaze your own trails. But at the core of this mentality, it's fueled by a small view of God. It's completely neglecting the absolute reality of what kind of king God is. He's not a tyrant up in the sky. He's not dangling us around like puppets. He's not not taking from us. He's not demanding and oppressing us. He's not trying to snuff us out and make our lives hard. Now, it might take some time for you to realize that, right? You might, it might take some time to realize that God isn't holding out on you. 
that God's not being withholding, that he's not trying to keep you from the good life, that he's not trying to keep you from your wildest dreams. He's simply telling you that your desires, your dreams are too small. The reality is that God's will, his desire, his kingdom is bigger and better than the one that you can create for yourself. Now, when you see God correctly and you understand what he's like, you'll see that his desires are for you, not against you. That his desires are to see you profit, not necessarily financially, though that is a blessing that God does offer his people, but there's a, a, a profitableness of living life with God, to know that you're loved by a heavenly father, that he's holy, that he always does what is good, right, and perfect, even when our circumstances doesn't really seem to point to that. We look at how can cancer be God's will for my life? How can a rebellious kid be God's will for my life and it be good? And God reveals himself to us that he is kind and he's gracious and even in the most undesirable circumstances, he is faithful that he wants us to experience the good life, the one that is bigger than what we could make for ourselves, the one that he makes to flourish under his care, to trust that he is looking out for us, that he is at work advancing his kingdom by pushing back the darkness that we're trapped in. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to think. The kingdom that I'm creating, we like to think of it optimistically. It's this great life, this great world, this great kingdom of sorts that, that, that's just really all enjoyable all the time. But that is a deception of Satan. A good life that we create is nothing but darkness. And God sees his children, his people, trapped in this darkness, the oppression, much like they were trapped in uh, when they were under Pharaoh's rule. He says, I've got to get them out of there. And God goes to work by rescuing us from the kingdom of, of darkness by sending his son, Jesus, who is the rightful heir of his throne. Where Jesus sheds his glory sheds his splendor as the king of kings, and he comes to earth as a simple man, preaching the good news of the kingdom, that God is breaking into this fallen world, in the dark world, and he's restoring order, he's reclaiming his people. That he's at work rescuing us from a lesser kingdom that we set up and delivering us into a kingdom of joy forevermore. And in doing so, God is reworking our desires. Now, the only way for Jesus to reclaim his people from the darkness of sin and death was to face sin and death head on. Now, when Jesus came to earth, Jesus lived the perfect life. He, he lived a life that really embodied the Lord's prayer. He, his whole, every step he took, every thought, every action, every word was kingdom-minded. Everything that he did, we're told, he does because the Father had told him to do so. He was really living out what it looked like to be mindful of the kingdom, to act upon God's will. 
And what God's will led him to was the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sitting there and he knows that he's going to have to face the cup of wrath. That he's going to go to the cross and he's going to face uh, God's wrath of uh, coming down on sin uh, for all sinners. And he's there and he's pleading with God. Father, is this the way it has to go? If it's your will, take this cup from me. But God says, no, this is the way it has to be. And so God, according to his will, made Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be made fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so there on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of our rebellion. He absorbed the punishment of cosmic treason. He broke the pangs of death so that we wouldn't have to experience them for ourselves. Now, let me, what kind of a king does that? What kind of a king would lay down his own life for his people? Your job's not going to do it. Your kids aren't going to do it. Your reputation, your bank account's not going to lay down its life for you. But Jesus does. He comes and he lays his life down as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he dies for his own people. Now this just points to the reality that God's kingdom is upside down. It is not like the kingdom of this earth. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus rescued us by his work on the cross, from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into his everlasting kingdom. And the way to enter into the kingdom of God is not by striving. It's not by working really hard. We enter God's kingdom by trusting in the work of Christ and trusting that he has washed away my sin and he has made me fit for heaven where we're born again. That's what happens when we trust what God has done for us in the gospel. He gives us his spirit. It regenerates our hearts. He makes us new. We're, it's as if we're born again. And the spirit is moving within us, working in our hearts, changing our desires so that we would be kingdom-minded, that we would joyfully say to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as people who are made citizens of heaven, people who are already, already citizens of heaven, but we are not yet living in the fully consummated kingdom, Jesus delegates his authority to us. In the Great Commission, right before Jesus ascends into the heavens, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and then he sends his disciples out with that authority. Now, what this is pointing to where the authority is delegated to God's people, is going all the way back to the beginning of creation where Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, a place where God's kingship, his rule, his reign is known and realized, where earth is thriving, a time before sin entered into the world, a time before there was this dissatisfaction and rebellion in our hearts that caused us to push away from God. And he's saying, my gospel is so powerful. The work that I'm doing in your heart is so magnificent that it's taking you back to the day where God had appointed Adam and Eve to rule and be co-heirs in that garden. The same is true of us now. That as we endure with Christ, we also rule and reign with Christ. 
We become co-heirs to the kingdom. Now, when you think this way, when you pray the Lord's Prayer honestly and you give thought to what we're actually praying, this has some major implications on the life of the church. This means, as, as individuals, we're taking time daily to reestablish Jesus as the king of our hearts. It's easy for these lesser kings to try to push Jesus off the throne, but by faith, by clinging to the word of Scripture, by clinging to the gospel, we reestablish Jesus as our king day by day. And as his, he is functioning as our king, as we're partnering with the Spirit, we live to push back darkness. We're sharing the gospel with our unbelieving friends. We're offering them a better version of the kingdom that they're creating. We're setting out to make disciples, people who are subject to Jesus' rule, who are working to renew, the, 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 to renew our city, so that one day we would see every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping Jesus, their Savior and King, that he would be honored in every heart where Satan is bound and sin and evil are destroyed, where the mercy of God is demonstrating, demonstrated in justifying traitors. And that God's kingdom would be set up here on earth as it is in heaven forever and ever with no disruption, with no, with no uh, what's it called, no rebellion. Now just imagine the kind of impact that would have. To have a kingdom mindset in our lives. To, to, to be praying, not with, uh, o- not with only our circumstances before us, but thinking of how God is using these circumstances to bring about the kingdom of God. Imagine the impact on our city if we were a church that really meant your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think of the internal change that would happen here in the church and the external change that we would see in our city. And the only way that this is brought about is through the good news of the kingdom that Jesus brought to us. And now we're gonna come forward and partake of the Lord's Supper. We're gonna feast uh, at a meal that that does two things. It points us backwards in one sense, points us backwards in in where Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed for us, that we could be... uh, adopted into God's family, that we could be made uh, citizens of heaven. But it also points forward to the day where we will feast with Jesus in his fully restored, completely consummated kingdom. A banquet, a feast, a celebration. And so let us come forward with joyful hearts, knowing that God is bringing his kingdom, that one day it will be so. His kingdom will be here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for what you have done. That you have, you have delivered us from the dominion of darkness. You have given us a better vision for our lives. You've, you've set us on a path to enter into your kingdom. First by faith, through what Jesus has done, that we already are, are acting as if we are uh, citizens, trusting in your rule and reign in our lives, but then to see the kingdom manifest in this world. Help us to pray this honestly. Rework our will, our desires, 
to be your will and your desires for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.